This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven. Robbery homicides take me. Give me all you got! Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's L.A. crime opus, Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and joining me for the 149th episode of One Heat Minute, uh, of uh, uh, the podcast that impacts Michael Mann's L.A. 1995 crime opus, Heat, is... uh, an experienced podcaster and talker. Um, we just before jumped on air, talked about a three-hour uh, breakdown Mission Impossible podcast that he did as part of his podcast. Three and shows. a half hours. Three and a three half. And a half hours. Jesus. Well, that is that that is an effort um, in and of itself. Um, his podcast, um, amongst others, um, is the Watch and Talk. He is occasionally at Mandatory and THR, and um, really. Uh, recaps the entire uh, Mission Impossible series beautifully. That's his most recent post that I've read on THR that I just uh, really loved. And also, more importantly than anything that happens on this show, is an Ultimate Heat fan um, and reached out and said, Blake, I'd love to come on the show and talk to you about it. So uh, I'm, I'm very pleased that we've been able to make it work. This man... Yeah, I think you had one of my uh, Twitter friends uh, on there on, on there, and they shared it, and I was like, what, this guy's breaking down minute by minute? <laughs> And, you know, it wasn't until I broke down until I like watched my minute that I was like, oh, man, there's like five minutes right now until he gets to Wayne Grow. And I'm like, you're going to be talking about Wayne Grow right now for the next like, you know, several weeks or whatever, (laughs) just for this one little like build up to it. So I didn't really think about the task for that. But anyway, thank you for having me on. You're welcome. And sorry, his name is Dylan Shark. Dylan, (laughs) welcome to the show. (laughs) Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, Heat is in my top five of all time. It's um, it is a masterpiece. Uh, it's not. It's a movie. One of those movies I would not change any second of or any minute of. And I'm sure you uh, uh, you've come across that when breaking it down minute by minute. Yeah, I think uh, there are definitely folks who have contrary opinions to me. Uh, but the more that I've held this minute up to scrutiny, and in depth scrutiny too, I think like minute minute for minute, pound for pound, I wouldn't change. A frame, to be brutally honest. I don't know how. Uh, I love that you know. Although Man is uh, infamous for tinkering with movies after release and multiple versions and cut here or trim there or whatever, I think Heat is the least tinkered with, and that's saying something. You know, that's yeah. The, the it just it just came off Netflix. Did you, did you realize that in, the, in United the United States? Really? No, I didn't. It literally just came off in the last two weeks because we talked about it a couple of weeks ago. And you assigned me my minute, and I was like, okay. And I watched it a couple of weeks ago, and I watched all of it a couple of weeks ago, just rewatched it. And then the other night, I was like, oh, I got to go look at that minute again, and it was gone. <laughs> so then I popped over to Voodoo. I'm like, I, I can't believe I don't own this on Voodoo already. So I bought it, and oh, so I went to go buy it, and they only had the director's cut or yes. the director's definitive edition. But you smartly gave screenshots for the beginning and ending of the minute, and it's almost in the same place. It's I think it's maybe close. thirty seconds off. Oh yeah, something. Yeah, like it's, that. it's something. It's 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 synced up to a point, and then it diverts, like it diverges, yeah. and then it's sort of a bit weird. But you know, it did. It's I've seen in the cinema in the last during this project. I saw the director's definitive edition that came to Australia in a festival run, and then one of our 
really cool sort of um, the Randwick Ritz um, in Sydney is is one of those theatres that like plays things on 35 mil whenever they get a chance. It's like a little um, boutique theatre. Um, and so I've seen the film on 35 millimeter, which is the Warner Brothers Blu-ray version, and I've seen the 4K cut, which is the director's definitive edition. Um, and to be brutally honest, the 35 mil is just exquisite. Like it was maybe yeah. because the print was exquisite, and I knew that it was about 24 years old at the time. But I was watching it, and I was like, "Ah, oh, this is exquisite." Like I wouldn't have changed a frame. Just clean it up you know, post it on there on 4K and then just live with it. It doesn't didn't need any tinkering in my mind. Not a not a whisker. You know, I realized also when looking through this is, you know, Robert, Robert De Niro and Al Pacino were such established actors, obviously, when this movie came out. Yes. I just now went and looked and or, uh, Al Pacino was just as far away from Heat now as he was from The Godfather at the time. Yep. It's exactly 24 years. It is indeed. And the Irish. It's right. It's it's just uh, I don't know. It's really crazy like how much time has passed out. Because when Heat first came out, I saw I saw this when I was 10 years old. I saw this when the movie first came out. I had a uh, my aunt worked in. We are we product- have just discovered that we are the same age, and I would literally watch it. I think maybe a year after you watched it. Yeah, my aunt was in product placement for movies, so she got screeners for, for some reason, and she would just send them to me, and it was um. For some reason, the VHS release of this movie was one uh, was was a single VHS, but the screener that was sent was 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 one of those two VHS ones. So I think they right. had original versions of it that had two VHSs, and then later they were able to they increased the technology <laughs> of VHS to be able to fit it into one. But I remember it, you know, as a kid, whenever you see a two VHS movie, you know it's an epic, right? Because like yes. it was like Braveheart and <laughs> Godfather and like you know, those big epic movies, you know, Lawrence of Arabia and stuff like that. So I remember being, uh, you know, pretty excited about it, and I remember also being a kid explaining the end of the movie to my mom and like getting emotional when I told her about it. And also, <laughs> please and, tell and, me that conversation, please. Well, my mom was like, "Why are you getting so emotional right now?" We were like on a road trip, and I was like, <laughs> "Because they're friends," and he like reaches out and he holds his hand as he's dying. It's like. You know, as a as a kid, you don't understand this movie. No. You can't understand this movie. Unfath- unfathomable. At I didn't 10. even get. I, yeah, I didn't get like. I didn't get the the a William Fitchner story, the Van Sant story at all. No idea what that was all about, but yep. I just knew he, you know, he wanted to kill that guy, and I knew Wayne Grow was super bad, but I didn't really know what he had done that that was, was that bad, even though. You know, as I realized in this rewatch, the whole thing, the whole movie, is because of Wingro. The whole, the whole problem with everything, he never would have even gotten involved if Wingro hadn't shot that cop at the very beginning of the movie. Yep. Like Al Pacino never would have even uh, been exposed to Neil McCauley if he just hadn't that one second just been like, you know, just pulled the trigger and, and murdered a guy. Yeah, the robbery homicide is the element, right? Is the element of right. like once it's a homicide, it goes into Vincent's purview, and you you think right. that maybe. It would have been one of those highline burglaries that would have maybe come across their desk. They're going, "Hey, this this crew took down this armored car. Um, you know, no one was killed, but they're ghosts. Like they're in the wind. They took bar- they put- took barabons. That's it. And so Vincent right. might have said, i 'I'll leave it with them. That you know, they're right. good, but leave it with them. Or no, keep it on right. our radar. But not important. Not important. Not, a, not And as- I wouldn't have even known there was a robbery, a homicide." division specifically for murders while <laughs> yes. stealing from people and I, and I also think how many robbery homicide people does LA have you know like 10 or do they have 100 or like well isn't it the biggest isn't it the most famous bank robbery city in the world 
I I guess I don't according know, I, to I the preamble in Den of Thieves, which can totally be trusted at this point. <laughs> right, <laughs> Den of Thieves. Yeah, I I listened to the episode with you and Courtney Howard, who's one of my uh, buddies, and you guys talked about Den of Thieves a lot. A lot, a lot. But uh, yeah, I, I I wonder how that goes. But anyway, I just I saw this as a kid, and it's one of the movies as I've grown, I've been able to revisit and understand in new ways. Yeah. So it's it's been a part of my growing process as what because I don't know how I sat through a three hour movie as a ten year old kid and was super riveted, but this movie's riveting even if you don't understand the side plots that's going on. Like I didn't understand who. John Voight's character was. I didn't understand what was going on with, you know, with again Van Sant and Wayne Grove, really, to be honest. And I also didn't understand the complexities of their family lives. But but um, when you when you, you know, take it back, that's the brilliant thing. Is like even pre-family, post-family. You know, every, you know, uh, uh, I think uh, there's plenty of really great features that have come from film critics reappraising how they've grown with movies you know, over the years and, and different stages of their life and what they can mean and, like, real enduring pieces of art. You know, people talk about it with, you know, in, in literary criticism, people have talked about it for centuries, you know, talked about how, like, a great book is just a revisitable thing. It is to to dive back into that headspace, into the vernacular, into the intonation, into the voices that are in your head, into accessing those those parts. And so you read, you know, seminal books when you're a young age and you go back to them, there's certain... I don't know, there's like synapses that fire the same way as when you're a young person and then there's synapses that, you know, open up into wholly new things. You know, you can appreciate the craft a bit better. You can appreciate the, you know, things that are a little bit blunter and a little bit more simplified right. if it's aimed at a simple person, like simple kids, you know, like they're trying not to have anything too ambivalent or opaque for, for a young reader or whatever. But and yeah. I bet if I watch this movie in 10 years, there's going to be new things that I uncover from uh, it too. 100%. Right? Like, new ways to encounter like. Right. It's like it's like it's not like right now I'm like, oh, I have figured out everything I'm ever going to think about heat at this up to this point in my life. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, it's it's I don't think that'll ever ever really happen. for and, me. So I think that it'll always be something worth revisiting. And look, you're a, you're a podcaster, too. And so you understand, <clears throat> excuse me, as, as someone who like, you know, would regularly interact with folk and interview people and things like that is one of the pure joys of this show, just as talking to you is it's. It's literally being able to bring people on the show who have completely different lenses to me, who've gone through different experiences, right. who come from different backgrounds. And, and so I feel like I've gotten the luxury to look through different shades of glasses as I'm watching and different perspectives and different viewpoints, um, You know, even if I don't necessarily you're agree like, with them. You're like a taxi driver that only talks about heat. That's exactly what with I am. Pa- with this passenger because <laughs> you just get exposed to so many – so many different people that have so many different things going on, and you're just like, "Hey, so have you guys seen Heat?" And they're like, "What? This this taxi driver wants to talk about Heat." Um, but oh, yeah, I it's... just found my new Twitter bio. Uh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, oh, that's brilliant. Well, look, you know, uh, also, and this it kind of will segue into the, to our minute because we haven't even started our minute or anything. But my, I think the. I think the thing I love about this movie that that makes it stand out so differently from other movies is obviously this movie has, you know, uh, an anti-hero uh, mm-hmm. in in Robert De Niro or in, in Neil McCauley, and you know I think most people are viewing this movie are going to like him better than Vincent Hanna, but yes. the thing is, this m- this movie doesn't editorialize at all. It's 
it's like a documentary. It's it's you know, and and it really feels like a documentary in the fact that they use the telescopic lens so often. It it, it looks like you are every time you see a character, it looks like you're viewing in from a telescope or from binoculars from far away. Yes, and that's because the director is staying out of it. He's like, this is you know who you like better and who you're rooting for is none of my business. I'm just presenting you with what the characters are doing, and you can make up your own minds about it. And and while I think people are still going to be lean toward it, I don't think he's holding his ha- our, our hands to Neil McCauley. I think that he's letting us find our own way to, to the characters that we love. I agree. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think it's a real art to um, – and it's, you know, it's a great thing to hypothesize about. You know, the quintessential and, and Oscar-winning um, example of like – anti-heroism um in sort of the modern context or that you know that 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 follows bad guys is sort of butch cassidy and sundance kid you know these guys are fundamentally bad um and you know the the white hat that is following them um is this wraith is out there is is a shadow and they sort of have that prevents pervasive sense that he's always coming is always sort of there um but to to balance the same level of empathy that you have with each character, even though you're not editorializing exactly as you said, like in a more documentary sense, you're staying out of the the bad shit that they do. Like Michael Mann doesn't sugarcoat what I think is one of the gnarliest lines ever said in a movie, which is like, I tell you what I don't do, I don't sell medals. Like, you know, like yeah. I've just been watching you all day murder people um, on the television, but you're just, you're as glib as, I tell you what I don't do, I don't sell medals. You know what I mean? So like he's... It's it's I think it's a real mastery that this movie achieves that you are totally on the side um, of of both of them at the same time. And, but and it's funny is also I think part of the thing that is so abrasive about Patino among many things is he you know I think there's a lot of people that um, that speculate that he's a drug addict. Um, but his random screaming, like he's she got a great ass, <laughs> and the That's give me what good. you got. Give me what you got. Like uh, th- that scene with Hank Azaria. I saw an interview with him recently where he said they were doing takes over and over and over again. Michael May, uh, Michael uh, Man, Michael May. I combined Michael Bay and Michael Mann right there. <laughs> Way different, completely different. But a different movie directed the- by Michael Bay. <laughs> right. He did the take over and over and over again, and then finally, out of nowhere, uh, he was doing it calmly. He was just like, "Cause she got a great ass," and out of nowhere, he screamed in his face. And that was surprise for Hank Azaria. He didn't expect it, and that's what like that's the take that they ended up using. And it was because he was genuinely surprised that he's got his his face screamed in. So I I just I don't know. I just love those random scream moments from Al Pacino's character that makes him very um, I don't know unlikable in some ways also. Yeah, unlikable maybe, but unpredictable. I think it's all yes, with intent. Unpredictable. What's beautiful? Yeah. It's all with intent. Every one of those is an interrogation. This is what I often say. Right. You doing. Uh, like me, I've seen this movie many times over many years, and so you sort of get to it, and you're like, when you're piecing it together, you find view- whole viewings. It's like I'm just going to watch the shit out of Vincent, or I'm just going to watch the shit out of Neil. I'm just going to watch Chris Hellas. I just like that's the person that I want to vibrate with on this viewing. I want to really hone in on them. And one of the things that I think you talk about is like in isolation, you might find Vincent more abrasive or more silly or whatever. But like when you look at it, it's like when he's being silly, he's, he's trying to displace people. He's trying to, he's trying to grate with them. He's trying to, he, he wants to keep them uncomfortable. He wants to make sure that they, they can't track his, what he's actually thinking and feeling on this manic energy. And the shock value is great. Like that works in all of his interrogations, you know, from Albert Torina and then the brothers Torina and then, you know, Hank Azaria and, you know, in every person, and- 
Hey. And poor Ralph. Oh, Ralph. Ralph gets a sliver of it. Ralph gets, Ralph, sit down. And like he gets that great one. Sit down. <laughs> yeah. Xander Berkeley is great. There's also, it's so funny. Every single side character is uh, a household name. If you've yeah. watched enough TV or movies and, uh, you know, where Nat- everything from Natalie Portman, who's an Oscar winner, to William Fitchner. It's crazy that Michael T. Williams, uh, Williamson from was Bubba Gump the year before this. Yeah. And he seems so much older in this, obviously, obviously, because he plays a uh, character that's a little more mature. But anyway. No, the, and, and just before we get into the minute, just in case folks haven't had a chance to listen, there's a wonderful interview. If you, if you, they did a, an anniversary screening of Heat when they um, uh, collated this director's definitive edition and made it to 4K. Um, and it's a big panel session with Christopher Nolan in the host's chair. Uh, and he talks to uh, Michael T. Williamson about, you know, being in this movie. And the one thing was they'd actually cast someone to play Sergeant Drucker already. And when he didn't get an Academy Award nomination... Um, or a win um, in, for Forrest Gump, which is the year before. Um, Michael Mann and Al Pacino made it their personal like goal to get him in the movie. They're like, this guy was freaking great. Like He was essential to that movie that won a stack of Oscars. He didn't even get a nomination. That's just outlandish. So they paid yeah. the guy out who that had cast and cast Drucker. Cast him as uh, Michael T. Williamson, the legendary Michael T. Williamson, who's just incredible. And then goes on to work you know, with also, Man again. You know, also like the random cameo that I, that I definitely noticed this rewatch was um, Jeremy Piven as the doctor. Piven's great. Out of nowhere. Piven's great. And also the the lawyer from Jurassic Park, Gennaro. Yes. He's the he's construction the, he, clerk at the very beginning of the and movie. And he knows like, that Chris is up to something. He's he, Yeah, he's he, suspicious. He, he's suspicious right from the outset. He knows there's something wrong. He knows he's got all the papers. He's like, there's something wrong about this, but I'm going to let you go. But look. Dylan, in the spirit of great episode and great guests, we haven't even talked about the minute yet. So we're going to – what Dylan going to do I'll, right I'll, now? I'll, I'll blame myself for that one. <laughs> no, that's, this has happened many times. Um, what, what I'll do is uh, Dylan and I are now going to watch the minute together, the 149th minute of Michael Mann's nine, 1995 Crime Opus Heat. Um, we're going to watch that right now. Then we're going to come back and unpack it with you guys and, uh, and talk more things, all things heat. This is room service. Uh, Jameson ordered a BLT and they screwed up his room number. Could you give it to me, please? Yeah, I know. 1735. Thank you. Dang, so many of them have just perfect ending points, don't they? Just sometimes they just end perfectly. Like I was just going to say, right then, you know, if, for folks who are only listening, you get a you sort of a concept in the beginning of this minute. If we're talking about it just as like a mini vignette, you get this great establishing shot of the outside of the airport Hilton, um, 
you get De Niro going inside and this is where you sort of know that 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 great phrase, you know, have we had any high-line burglaries that have mystified us? You know, this guy just knows how to get into places and make himself seem anonymous. He walks straight into the service entrance, straight up to the phone, calls room service and gets the information about Jameson, a.k.a. Wayne Gross, straight away. Like, hey, Jameson on BLT, someone screwed up the room number and, you know, yeah, they're always doing that. Yeah, yeah, really casual, just like beautifully embodies the character of anybody you could talk to a thousand times in the hotel. Um, and while he's doing that, also he's scoping out uh, like room service costumes, right, or like uniforms, right next to it. Right next to him, he does it one on one, and then the minute ends with once he does that, and you're like, Jesus, this guy's good. Like again, it's just one of those appraisal moments where you're like, this guy's phenomenal, and he's not going to be stopped. Has a great little moment where the guys in the hotel who are watching over Wayne Grow and Jameson are just having a couple of cigarettes, blowing smoke rings, and just playing cards. Like there is no chance yeah. that this guy's going to be there. Vincent's already made the call. You know, about 10 minutes ago now in the sequence of the film that it's very unlikely he's going to be back. But the final, the beautiful sort of pièce de résistance of this minute before we get to the 150th is this wave of emotion and realisation that just sort of pours over Edie's face as she starts to realise she's sitting in the car and like, why, and, and, and sorry to be so brazen with saying it, but why the fuck am I here? Like she, this is what is going going through some serious doubts and and trust issues right now. Oh yeah, and 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 it's fin- like it's like finally, a- it, like she should be like this is like the moment where she should be having these trust issues and panic moment. I, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, she probably should have had them way before this, also. <laughs> I know. But, but, but even but more yes, so. Like, why would he do the detail? She was caught up in the romance. She was caught up in the romance, and I think a lot of people can relate with that. Where you get caught up with somebody that, in a passionate, in a moment of heated moment of passion, and you, you, you know, and you know that difference between when you, when your feet touch the ground and you kind of snap back to reality. Yes. And this is exactly what's happening. This is the credits rolling at the end of the. <laughs> Like if this is a romantic or a, a romance movie, the credits would have rolled just before she made this face. Yeah. Right. That's when people <laughs> ride off in the sunset together or whatever. Like that's the the thing about it. But do do you watch um do you watch Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul? I haven't seen much of Better Call Saul, but I did go through Breaking Bad. I've I've been all the way through. I I, I did Breaking Bad in like a massive binge. And right. uh, I, I called it Breaking Blake at the time because literally I was just like I was in Walter's headspace. Um, <laughs> so so um, I haven't watched Better Call Saul, but I've heard that it's incredible. So I'm kind of like I, I haven't I haven't made space for a binge yet, but it sounds great. So I do a uh, I mean I, I say with this uh, I do a, I do a podcast about Better Call Saul called Better Talk Saul. Oh great! And and I, and I talk about this a lot during the show, and it's doing a lot of Mike scenes because Mike's characters really expanded upon. Yes. Uh, Mike from Breaking Bad is really expanded upon in, in Better Call Saul, and it's a prequel that takes place before. But there's a term I always like to use, and that's competence porn. Yes. Where it shows him going around, and you don't know what he's doing. You just show him. You just see him taking a step by step, doing things very competently. He doesn't stop to look around. He doesn't like question what he's doing. Fiddle with things. He just. Grabs a tool, uses it, puts the tool down, goes to the next thing, extremely competent. And that's exactly what we see from Robert De Niro here. He doesn't sneak. He moves very quickly. He acts like he knows what he's doing. He makes a call, grabs the uniform. He's just slyly going through here and navigating through this in a way that I wouldn't – even if I wasn't doing something illegal, I wouldn't be able to navigate around a hotel this easily. All to- that is an all-timer observation. I just want to say that, guys. Competence porn is exact – that is like – that is a, a Michael Mannion essential to all of these uh, – a bunch of characters and so many 
the reloading from Val Kilmer that's super famous yeah. from this movie. Every- he should have got an Oscar just for yeah. the reloading scene. <laughs> Remember this. Remember this, Dylan. We, we, we've skated past the Oscars. I'm just going to take another quick moment talking to you about it. We've skated past the Oscars many times, talking about, you know, whatever anyone says about it, it's really incredible for a film and for a filmmaker and for a performer to receive that kind of recognition from their peers. Like, it's amazing. Like, whatever else we say about it and, and the elevation that it gives to a movie. This movie that has 70 speaking roles that is like $100 million in today's money action epic with some of the greatest actors have ever lived and like another filmmaker who's like a juggernaut filmmaker maverick incredible person la set ambitious thing wasn't nominated for an oscar not one it was nominated for an mtv movie award though for val kilmer <laughs> you know what so got i was i was i was wrong i was wrong some accolades mean it more than its, others it got its, it got the recognition it deserved <laughs> But no, competence, no, but I agree. But competence, but I porn, 90- competence porn though is such a, it's such an underrated, and yet essential thing, to just demonstrate like, um, to say things about a character without having to make really laborious exposition all the time. Right, right. And, and so a it's lot a great short. Shows Mike doing that. A lot of times, Mike, we don't even know what the end result is. Yes. And that's what's happening in this scene. We know he's going for Wayne Grove, but we don't know what he's doing. It's not like it's not like uh, you know, some set out plan that we know how they're gonna execute it. Yeah. We we just trust that he knows what he's doing because he's acting like he knows what he's doing. So as the viewers are watching it, being like, This is it pumps endorphins in your head when you see somebody doing something so competently. And that's something that again, like that's that's what's happening in this sequence. That's, and like that's, what's sl- happening. that's what happens a lot with Mike's character. So, Dil, I don't know if you noticed, like a few years ago, that like, and and it sort of happened in the Australian tennis season. You know, you're talking about competency porn before. They started to bring in these super slow motion cameras, and very particularly started focusing on like one of the greatest tennis players of all time, like Roger Federer. And I'm not like a huge tennis guy or anything like that, but I just remember. They used to, in all the promos for all the ads in the Australian Open in January, they just kept playing over and over again these slow motion shots of him doing backhands. And it was Mm. this crazy, like, balletic, insane movement where you could see his muscles rippling. You see him, like, he's he's rehearsed this movement, you know, 10,000 times. And you're seeing it in ultra slow motion. And I think it's like, that was, like, a sports version of competency porn. Like, look at this guy who has this motion, even one shot of a cachet of shots. Down or like to something so- you'd see in like Planet Earth or something like yeah, that from that, animals like that in super slow mode. That's exactly like, it's really like, accurate. It's like that lizard. It's like that lizard who escapes the snake pit in the most recent like Planet Earth. Right. It's like it's it's right. so unbelievable. You're like I didn't know a body could move like that, or I didn't know someone could get to that level. So it's like that's one of those things that I think Heat does so unbelievably, and I think is like an underrated commodity in movies when you're just shown that someone's really good at something. And in in the most overt ways, you see it in in like really fun popcorn movies like the Oceans movies and heist movies in general. They feel like a genre that's really ripe for it. Um, But I just, like, I love what you said there about Heat just does it over and over again. Um, And you were talking more about Better Call Saul um, as a prequel but uh, I just I, I I just remember being mesmerized by it and something that completely sticks in my head. And now when you're saying it, I'm like, you can start to see that 
I don't know if people are as overtly aware of what they're doing when they show you it, but I like that's what makes now tennis memorable for me and Federer is like when I see him do a backhand, I can only imagine the super slow-mo planet earth, you know, version of him doing that. Also in a scene like this, right. Um, it's like a puzzle, right. Mm. And you know, without even realizing your brain is trying to put it together. So like when you're seeing him doing something like this, you're like, okay, what's he doing? Okay. All right. He's making a call right now. He says he has a, he ordered a BLT, lost the room number. Okay, he's trying to find the room number. Okay, how is he going to do this? Oh, and you you don't you're not like out loud saying it, but you're you're trying to figure out what they're doing while they're while it's going on, and it's a fun puzzle for your brain. It's like an intellectual puzzle for you to try to start figuring out what they're doing because it's not spelling it out right in front of you. You you know you pretty much figure uh, that he's going to get Wayne Grow because in the car on the on the way there he just. He looks unsettled, right? He's just like, I, uh, I got this itch that I need to scratch. Ah, we got time, and that <laughs> ends lo- up being his, I, I, his undoing completely. I love that. It's the itch he's got to scratch. I wonder right. if we pull those faces when you've got like an itch in the middle of your back that right. you can't reach. You're just I'm like, like uh, Wayne Grove. <laughs> Wayne Grove. <laughs> Freaking Wayne Grove. I mean, sorry, I have an itch. Sorry. If, but yeah, it's about his sense of justice too, right? Like. Hmm. It's funny is that whole idea that uh, we – are you able to drop everything in 30 seconds flat when you see the heat coming around the corner? Yes. And, you know, it, it's it, – I don't know. It, it's, it's interesting because with Edie, he was able to. He was able to walk away from her. Hmm. And it, it wasn't about the people in his life necessarily. It was a sense of justice. He was like, this guy, Wingro, he needs to freaking die. And – uh, you know that's that's what he gets caught for. It's, it's just the fact that he needs that. Or you know, you, uh, I don't know if some people would call it justice. Some people call it revenge. Um, but I, I look at it more as justice than in, than revenge. I think in your mind, like so, objectively, we can say it's vengeance. You know, it's revenge for him being an imposition to everything that they've done so far. It's revenge for the heat that he brings about on them. It's revenge for the deaths of you know mo- most directly Treo. It's revenge for the 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 tip off to the cops, but in Neil's mind, or also I, even that killing that cop at the beginning that didn't deserve to die. Yeah, all of like, those. Like all, all yeah. of the, it's the whole suite of those things. Like we can objectively say it's revenge, but I because he doesn't seem to ever kill anybody that that he doesn't need to. Right? He's not a he's not a psycho like Wingro is just this. But but I think the psychotic nature of Neil is in that for him none of it is revenge. It is balance. Like, it is justice yeah. in his mind. Like, right. nothing that he's doing, he's like, I've got more motivation to kill this person. You know, it's like that, I, think, I love the phrasing there. Like, to go back to another minute, it's like, I've got more motivation to kill Van Zandt than, like, anyone here, right, in right. his crew. Right. And right. Do, do you have more motivation to kill Van Zandt than the crew? Because, like, like, oh, yes, the assassin was going to kill you as an individual, right. but you had the whole crew there to stop them, right? So, I think right. it's that whole... Like in his mind, you're a business. Restoring man. balance. I, yeah. like, I like that. that yeah, that he, way it's it's the balance of we are business, we are criminal businessmen. You should know that my motivation was not personal, and Van Zant takes it personal, so he takes it personal. And with Wayne Grow, it's you've now added heat on us, so the balance is you've got to go. And right. so, um, you know, Van Zant was. And if always, he just hadn't, if he just hadn't done that, he would have gotten away. And that really bums me out because he's a guy. Just I wish, I wish. Does he, I feel like he deserved to survive this movie, and you know that's that's not how things work in the situation. Yeah, it's one of those things where 
the genius of this movie is that on these two parallel train tracks of Vincent and Neil, our co-protagonists, you always are on both of their sides. In any given moment, whenever they're on screen, you're like, you want Neil to get away. You want Neil to make the decision that adheres to his discipline. Like, that's what we... I feel like that's what we're constantly reinforced to do. And... Because uh, Chris Chris is... Val Kilmer is able to in this, in this movie. He is able to walk away. Um, and... You know, to see his mentor not be able to. Uh, but I just don't think – I think but, um, but, Neil but, also – But, Dill, I think one thing I want to bring up with you around that is, you know, if you look at the awesome um, – you know, if, if, if you guys have had a chance to listen, and hopefully you have um, had a chance to listen to the previous episode, 140, um, with uh, Joe Joe Grabinski. Um, this is 149. If it's your first episode, welcome. Thank you so much for listening to One Heat Minute. But if you go back, one thing that Joe <laughs> Joe and I talked about was – you know, even though Chris gets away, you know, I, I can't remember what what phrase. He doesn't really get away. Right? He doesn't like he get doesn't, away. He escapes jail, but he doesn't like escape. Like he's not going to be happy or anything, right? Like, Joe used the phrase "sheer devastation." Like, and I think that that look on his face when Charlene cuts him loose, you know, if the sun rises and sets with her, his life is in disarray. Like, who the hell? knows where Chris goes from here. And so when I look at his face, I'm like, yeah, he got away. But, you know, I feel like Neil, if Neil left Edie and did get away in this movie, Neil's not, I don't think Neil's as beat up about it as having to leave Edie because the discipline has been reinforced a time. Well, Edie was a fantasy, right? It was just, it was, it was, it's a fantasy of this non-lonely existence that he thinks that this storybook that he'll be able to live in that he probably (laughs) wouldn't have been able to anyway, right? Like... Yeah, like it, it, I like, think, do you think they would have been together forever? No, I think um, I, in an episode, an earlier episode, and, and I, I love to credit the awesome guests on the show. But like, I think Manola Dargis called Edie the postcard from Collateral. Like, that's what she is. Mm-hmm. She's mm-hmm. she's that fantasy land. She's the embodiment of that fantasy land. She's what he thinks he needs at that time. But you know, after all of this, like hair trigger, impulse, competency, perfection. Like, how does Neil go to New Zealand and be bored like how does he not do things like that idle hands of the devil play scene like how if he gets away he's coming back like he's he's he won't he may not come back to LA but like what's to stop him from going to Chicago what's to stop him from going to New York re-establishing in in touch with John Voight's character again at some point and try to pick up jobs somewhere somewhere hooks up with Nate or or a proto Nate in another town Starts making moves himself, Highline burglaries, makes a crew. You know, it's it's like this is the thing that's kept him, that's made him be able to survive and stay out of jail. Um, but it just seems but, like unconscionable to me for him to be that free and not to be a slave to this program that he's constantly having to reinforce. Well, also when we talk about uh, in that same vein of Val Kilmer, right? You know. Um, not really getting away, even though he gets away, right? He escapes jail, but that doesn't mean he doesn't, you know, he's not punished, right? Yes. Um, it's like in that vein, did Neil lose and Vincent win? Because I don't think Vincent really necessarily won, right? It's not like Vincent's looking off into the, uh, you know, into the airport with the lights and being like, oh, nice, my my completed life, like things are going well for me right now and stuff like that, right? Because no. he's also sacrificed everything for this as well. 
Yeah, I, th- I think... Uh, and Neil's I, pain is done, right? Neil's pain is done. There's, there's a way that, you know, it's... In the, way, in the immediate wake, like, let's just say, I don't know, let's just say there's a hard cut to credits immediately after Vincent shoots Neil. Like, let's just say, like, imagine an existence where that happened. It would be a completely different ending to this movie. Because the movie that, would be different. The whole movie's different. Because in that right. moment, it's kind of validating that Vincent is punishing Neil, that Neil deserved this punishment. And I think a lesser film is like, the good guy beats the bad guy, the bad guy deserved to die. And it's sort of this... Right. And, and, and this movie, I think, is elevated in your and my conceptions and in everyone who's listening to this show and all the wonderful guests is because it, the last thing that it does is not that. It makes us... Right. We've been viewing, you know, realistically from... I'm just going to go, like, try and find the, the exact minute um, of where it sort of started. It's like... It's almost back at like the 112th minute and you and I are now talking about the 149th. It's like at the midway point of this movie and like two hours in is the heist. Like we're seeing the fallout. It's almost now consistently like 37 minutes, nearly 40 minutes of all fallout. And so even right. in the even at the crescendo of the movie that we're referencing at that airport, it doesn't get it like neither of these guys are going to get away with get away scot-free from this. Like, Neil's whole, Neil is, has had to abandon Edie, so she's gone. Even if he does get away from Vincent or does, you know, the, the tables have turned and he gets, he shoots Vincent and he gets away, is his cover blown. He's, there's no way he's staying in LA. Very highly likely that he's going to get caught anyway. If he doesn't get caught, he's gone. Edie's gone. Chris is gone. He's permanently hunted in the United States. You know, so he's, there's no... Well, also... Well, I was going to say there's also right like um, he's that, that conversation they had, which is just a, a brilliant conversation. I, I I almost wish I was there for that minute, even though that was several minutes. I'm sure <laughs> the conversation they have in the in the diner, um, where he says, you know, he's not going to go back to jail, and at the end he doesn't because I think that would have been a worse punishment than ever, right? Like the like he is it's freedom or death. It was it was like almost a respectful, um happenstance that he's that Al Pacino gets the drop on him because I, that was a coin toss that that who was going to survive that but it was you know it, you know it's not like when he was sitting there laying on his on, on you know dying he, he it's not like he picks up his gun and really wants to kill Vincent he doesn't he doesn't have any ill will toward Vincent at all like his sense of justice isn't toward him right it's toward uh, you know although it is toward Wayne Grove. so killing him is not a crime to him as opposed to what Wayne Grow did is a crime. Yes. Right? Like, Vin- and Vincent, Fing- yeah, I, I, I agree. It's like Vincent, him facing off with Vincent is like an occupational hazard, right? It's right. like, it's like you do what you do, I do what I got to do. Like, you know, there's a flip right. side to that coin. You do got me boxed in. Like, that whole exchange, right. you know, there's. And seems- also, imagine if, if Vincent, or, you know, Neil killed Vincent at the end of the epi- or at the end of the movie. Yes. Like I feel like the whole way I look at the movie would be different and I feel like that's the way that they had to do it. They had to end the character you liked better or at least I liked better. Um but I feel like most people like Neil's be- Neil better because he's the antagonist but he's he's the I don't know. He he's the he, he's he, he has is, a uh, It is a weird thing. The more likable character. It is a weird thing in this movie. Because I think it's I think it's a flip of a coin for everyone mm. in this movie to, to to who they love, and I genuinely 
over the two years of this project have flipped, you know, like sometimes I've been so near, like just because of it's De Niro's craft and he's like magnetism. And there's like this weird allure that he has in silence. You know, it makes him one of the greatest actors who's ever lived. Like the camera loves him in close up, not saying a word. And so this movie has large chunks of that. Like Michael Mann as a filmmaker has a hyper awareness of what, you know, what we as the audience want from De Niro and what De Niro's like strengths are. You know, he, you know, Michael Mann famously is one of his top ten movies of all time is Martin Scorsese's Raging Bull, um, and you know Marty does better in that movie just with movement and action and ferocity with De Niro's face in close up and black and white. It's just you know the composition is unbelievable, right? And it's emotional and fantastic. And so I think that there's a, a whole reading of this movie where you're like, you like the cool antagonist, conflicted, ambivalent. Um, and, you know, if you're not a Pacino fan, you know, I, I, or if you like De Niro more just even as an actor and a performer and his body of work, you kind of lean towards Neil all the time. But I find myself constantly in awe of all the things, the selfless nature of Pacino's form, performance here because Pacino has, you know, more exposition. He's got... You know, he's got more exposition stuff. He's got he's leaning into more of that dialogue-driven sort of stuff. He's he's a bit more of a grading character in some ways, and especially in his interrogations, he's got to be manic and crazy to keep people off. Don't guard. waste my motherfucking time. time. Like yes, like all these interrogations. But I like love that. Like the more I've watched this film with an audience, I just marvel at Pacino too. So I I completely agree. The movie has to end the way that it ends. Um, and and in reference to our very specific minute, it's like. Despite the fact that we're, you know, we're getting this competence porn, we're getting this, like, we're watching the work of a cold-blooded sociopath. He's so good at just murdering people and then walking away like nothing. Like, he literally walked up to Van Zandt's house, murdered him, left. <laughs> Wayne Grove, murder, left. Like, he's good. Beats a cop half to death. You know the best part of the, the most... Yeah, go. Sorry, go. The the most pleasing part of of, of finally killing um, Wayne Grow is that look at me. Yeah, look at me. Like who wrote? Like like who who thinks of that? Right? Like who <laughs> thinks to say look at me? I want you to look at me in the eyes. Yes. I don't want to say anything to you. I don't want to chew you. Out. I just want you to be looking in my eyes and realizing I'm the one that's killing you. I want my face to be the last thing you see before you die. Like, it is fucking cold blooded. It's right. fucking that cold is, blooded. I don't. I, I don't. I, I think it has to be like one of the top cold blooded murder scenes in in in, in oh, any yeah. movie I've seen. You can't. And, I don't want you to even for one second be able to not realize. That I'm right. I'm dealing out your debt. Right. Yes. It is me. I want, like, you know, I, what was that? In what? In that movie, Wild Wild West, there's the idea that the last frame that you see is, yes. is burned into your, your eyeball so they can put a projector can in I your head. Can I just say, Dylan, I never thought in this podcast, we've had some digressions. Okay. We've had some wild digressions. But to get to Wild Wild West from here, yeah. I just want to. I just oh, need well, to everybody clap. Everybody gets there, to, you know. Everyone I, goes. I need to clap. That wild is Wild one West. Of, That's one where of, it always goes. That's where it always goes. <laughs> but also, well, another thing I want to say too, when we're talking about um, uh, uh, Vincent's character, because we're talking about this, and I and I really truly think that Mike again, Mike from Breaking Bad, I feel like was pulled straight from Neil McCauley. Yes. He is his sense of justice is the same, his competence the same, his. Uh, loneliness and how little he talks 
and all that kind of stuff is all kind of I, I really think he was he was derived from Neil McCauley more than anything. I don't have any actual evidence on that, but I think next time I get an interview with one of those guys, I need to bring that up. But um, that scene where we first meet Vincent Hanna and he's going there at the at the crime scene hmm. of of that um, that uh, uh, heist of the of the the armored car, the armored car, right? He's walking around, and he's and also we see that confidence porn. He is figuring out everything. He just arrives on the scene. They've already been there for maybe hours, and he figures out things immediately that that other people didn't. Right? Like he's immediately pointing out the professionals. They know our our time. They did this, and then I also love when he said somebody kills one of them and one of the the cops, and you know they didn't want it. You know they didn't want to kill anybody. Why leave but a living what, witness? Nobody, Right, Why they were like a living witness. These guys were. Just the words. What difference? What difference does it make? Yeah, he said. Once you killed one, what? It's already escalated robbery or homicide. What difference does it make? And and also thinking back to that scene when after he kills one of them, they they look at each other and he just makes a nod. He just makes a nod and like and Vincent Hanna figures all that out in two seconds. And that was just another. Just showing that these two people are as competent as could be at their jobs. We're watching heavyweights in in this, and that's what oh, that, it, 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 it's that, that whole, whole thing. It's that whole thing. It's like watching a professional do anything. Yeah, you know, versus um, versus someone who does it as a vocation. Like, you know, like Vincent walks in and he's just pointing to elements for explanation. TV man caught a guard slick. This guy, bang, you know, I love, I, love oh, Ted. Yeah. I, could, I, I can't get over Ted Levine. He's like, bang, 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 close quarters, cool, points <laughs> to the, and then, so then, and then Vincent's, and <laughs> they got, they got 1.1 million in barrel bombs, and they ignore the loose cash. I just like yeah. Ted Levine, freaking legend. And this is only, what, four years after he played Buffalo Bill? Yes. In South yes. Lambs. That's also crazy that, anyway. Yeah, and uh, he and, uh, gets a little death too. Dead Levine's character, I think, it even shows like uh, uh, some of his skull uh, outside of his head after he gets shot in the head or something like that. Like yeah. he's only in this he, movie. He's he's uh, Ted Levine. Two things about Ted Levine's character in this movie is Bosco. Number one, Michael Mann offered him Wayne Grow because Michael Mann has a like for, for folks who don't realize is you know he had a huge um, he did Manhunter and the folks Dina De Laurentiis who owns the rights to Thomas Harris's Hannibal trilogy actually offered him to do Silence of the Lambs after he'd done Manhunter and he said no and then it obviously went um, the Jonathan Demi went to Jonathan Demi the legend Jonathan Demi and, and created you know that masterpiece that is Silence of the Lambs but Michael Mann didn't want to do that um, and similarly you know at the time I think he wanted to cast Ted Levine because he'd seen Silence of the Lambs and was a huge fan yeah, was like that would have really worked I'm I'm not gonna lie that would have worked well he, he wanted to cast Ted Levine as Wayne Grove. I feel like I'm... so Michael Mann wanted to yeah, cast I'm Ted... saying that would have worked oh, if he did want to play Wayne Grove, I think totally. he I think I like the way it worked out but I that, that would have worked out let's you know let's oh, just, 100% but I think Ted Levine was like please don't make me play another psychopath like I've just done right uh, so he's like let me be a cop but also, Ted Levine has that death scene is maybe one of the most disturbing. The death mask that he has when he's dead and like his eyes are wide and wild and Vincent has to appraise his dead body. It's like that one. Talk about like, you know, the wild, wild west, last thing you're ever going to see images. Like that, <laughs> that image of his death mask is a, is a haunting one in this movie. Um, but, and but it's interesting too because in that, in that chess game of this movie, uh, it's interesting too because that you know robbery heist that big one that happens 
around the two-hour mark. They trade the Ted Levine for the Tom Sizemore. And, you know, it seems like that hurts McCulley more. Obviously, he has more test pieces. Vincent has more test pieces, especially ones he can trust when, he, you know, when half the thing he's doing is trying to kill one of the guys that that um, betrayed them or whatever the, whatever the case may be. Uh, wait, but also now we've t- we've talked about other things besides the minute, and that's my fault completely. But <laughs> I do want to say one thing, too. When he is walking down that corridor um, into the hotel, mm-hmm. and again, he's just walking like he knows what he's doing, and that's all you got to really do if you want to get around, sneak around somewhere, right? You don't want to act like you're a fish out of water. Um, but it's like it, you know, it's silent. And a lot of this movie, or a lot of this movie, has no score. But yes. then he's walking the hallway, and then boom, the score just kicks in. Just like nonchalantly, the score just kind of kicks in once he's walking down there. Just kind of informing the audience that this the scene is getting more tense. And I love how it just kind of just kicks in and just starts playing while he's walking down the, the hallway, just being like, "Oh, the stakes are changing in this scene." Yeah, and and I think it's good. it's one of, it's one of those great unconscious decisions as well, right? So you do it. And the fact that the score kicks in, and because it's been sparing with the score at certain times, right. it's like an immediate heart, like a heart pump. Like, you go, boom, oh, okay, here we go, something's going to happen. And so, in some ways, it kind of it's it's very manipulative, and like the same as horror movies, right? You know, you a horror movie will play the score when something tense is about to happen. Um, but again, in Heat, it's like, okay, this is you know, be prepared, things are going to happen, things are going to happen. And and a lot of times, like in this scene, and not to spoil the upcoming minutes and the discussions, but it's like. We think that Neil's like going to get caught. Like we didn't already do that. Like we didn't already. But the things we <laughs> we think that Neil's going to get caught, and Neil, as we know, like he just goes through. Like it's it's a longer, a higher, multi tiered level of tension that's happening all the way through this minute, because really until you know we've still got about another five or ten minutes before he actually gets to Wayne Girl and the killing is done. We're sort of seeing all. We're seeing his motions. We're seeing him get through. We're seeing him making his way through the hotel, and then we cut over to Vincent, who starts to get some notifications that things are going down at the hotel, and he has to make a yeah. call whether he's going to leave Justine or stay. And as we know, he's if, sort right, of if he's skip- going to walk, or if he's going to walk away from the things that he loves when he feels the heat coming around the corner, kind of right, like yes, which he does, right? He 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 emphatically, finally, one hundred percent leaves his wife in that scene, you know, um, and, um, you know, that's heartbreaking itself because they had the best moment they've had in the entire movie together. The, the closest and nicest they've been to each other, <laughs> the sweetest they've been to each other just yes. before they, they leave each other. Yeah. That's the, that's the tragedy. And also the, the brave face. I think what's scary is that the brave face that Diane Venora's character puts on and says, yeah, no, I can do it. Go if you need to go. And right. Vincent sort of skips down the stairs and there's this sort of lonely wind instrument and right. she crumples when he leaves. Because like, she, right. you know, she knows the weight of you know, a young daughter who's just committed suicide, a marriage that's just collapsed, and she's got to kind of be there. But she, she knew that you know, that was her cutting him loose from their relationship like right then. Right. And there. right. Ah, anyway... We covered all we 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 could for this minute. <laughs> I look. D- firstly, I was going to say, Dylan, 
I think you, you've done one of the all-timer quotes of competency porn. I love it. If you've already mentioned it on your other podcast, Watch and Talk, or your breakdown of uh, Better Call Saul, yeah. I think that that is, you know, that, that, that is enough to, to demonstrate um, uh, exactly the kind of uh, Michael Mann insight that we needed. So, firstly, Dylan, thank you for reaching out. Thank you for supporting the podcast, and thank you for being a part of the show. Yeah, hopefully I can get you on uh, my podcast review and movie sometime. We'll we'll talk about it and we'll we'll try to figure out sometime. Absolutely free to talk about it. And also, I for for folks who don't realize, I do occasionally review movies that don't take me a hundred and fifty hours. <laughs> so I can. Hopefully... It's like it's like when you when you're done with this, are you gonna ever want to talk about Heat ever again? Like, are you just gonna have every conversation you could possibly have? Every you 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 had every single perspective of the movie you could possibly have but somehow i feel like there's still going to be more to say i just think that right now over two because this is the other thing right you you know this you know as a person who podcasts and as a film fan and as a as a writer and observer of things it's like things grow in your conceptions and things change um significantly in different periods of your life and i feel like the this entire project over two years um, has been amazing because of the different people that I've been able to talk to, your friend Courtney Howard, like, you know, all the amazing guests that have brought their lenses to it. I feel like I've been able to view it from a million different ways. Um, but I'm happy. I I don't know if I'll feel, I think I might feel sad when it's over as much as I feel right. satisfied. So like, I, I think that, you know, when you've been able to pour over a piece of art like this, and have like a lot of the opinions and be able to project and bounce things off other people and have people disagree with you. Like people, you know, happily have said, you know, you know, other Michael Manfields have done these themes better or, you know, they, they might have crescendoed in this, but I think they're honed better when they're simpler, you know, epic. And then you just drop them off the call and then you just um, <laughs> say, see you later. No, no, this, this is, this is what, you know, this is part of the exercise, right? You want to scrutinize it and you want to hold it up. And so right. I, I think, you know, you you called me um, a taxi driver that only talks about heat at the beginning right. of this episode. And I think right. at the end of it, I will have felt like I've had all the conversations, but the amazing people that have been following along on this show and the amazing people who have interacted and the amazing people that have contributed might still have more things to say. And so yeah. I'll always be here as, uh, as the person who's... Uh, has probably committed more time to this than any other person. So I'm more ha- more than happy to always talk about it. But no, I won't be doing any more follow-up podcasts uh, for Michael Mann, uh, existing Michael Mann movies. Um, you know what movie I think would be perfect for this also, besides that? Heat? Um, because the part of a, a Heat is there's so much going on in every scene, right? Everything is packed into it. And um, in my, uh, another movie, I, I, this came to mind when I thought about this, is... Uh, another one of my top five movies of all time, which is Atonement. Atonement. I feel like Atonement would be so because every that's a movie I think of when I think of every frame a painting. Yes, because every frame of that movie is a painting, and not only to talk about the cinematography from it, but the the complexities uh, that happen throughout the movie. I, I thinking about you doing a, a you know a podcast of every minute or something. I was like, you know, that's the besides Heat, which I think is perfect for that. Uh, I think atonement is another is it would be uh, just like another perfect idea. I'm not suggesting you do that or anything. That, well, but I, just like, I'm suggesting that you do it. I'm suggesting yeah. that, that, that the atone minute podcast, the atonement, the atonement, atone minute <laughs> podcast, the perfect yeah. name if for I it. Launched, if, if I launched it, I, you'd be my first guest. That's for sure. I would happily, I'd happily be a guest on the show. But yeah, look, there are. 
of you know I'm like I'm lucky Dylan. I feel like Heat is the perfect movie for this, and there are some other fantastic and phenomenal movies that um, have minute by minute podcasts. Um, but I genuinely think that you know that they're rare bird. I think Atonement's a great film too. That's the rare birds that you can. And I, I feel like you very quickly, um, if you've taken the ethos as I have to get people who maybe don't agree with you all the time, um, you very quickly realise that like there is scrutiny to be had on every masterpiece. And I think that this is one that uh, it, it's gotten to hear. But yeah, no more Michael Mann movies for me. Maybe another project on the horizon, but you guys will have to wait to hear about that. Ladies and gentlemen, please um, uh, follow along. Uh, Dylan Shuck, thank you so much. At Shuckster, S-C-H. U C K S T E R on Twitter. Um, don't forget that C. Don't forget that first C. Don't forget the C. Um, if you forget it, you will just be searching forever. Thewatchandtalk.com. You can find all of his other links. Um, he's got some other links to some freelance work that he does as well. Thank you so much for being a part of the show, Dylan. Um, and hopefully, yes, I was, uh, I'll definitely guest on there uh, on your show. Just let me know what time and a place, and I'll be there. Thank you, Mr. Garth Franklin, for our web design. Mr. Paul Davies for our theme. And we'll catch you on another episode of One Heat Minute, just around the corner.